I call your attention now to the Word of God found in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 until the end of chapter 14, verse 72. Mark 14, 53 through 72. And the title of the message is Irony and Glory, the Unveiling of Christ's Identity. Irony and glory, the unveiling of Christ's identity. Hear the word of our God. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. But the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but, they, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about these, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that this man testified against you? But he remained silent and made no answer again. He made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let us pray together once more time. Father, please reveal the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ through this passage. In Jesus' name may we pray. Amen. I'm convinced that uh, one of the reasons why we are lukewarm many times is because we still have our eyes closed to see the glory of Jesus. I think that's what we see in Revelation chapter 3 with the Laodicea church and their lukewarmness. And one of the ways that God worked out their lukewarmness is in chapter 4 when the, the doors of heaven were opened so that they could see the glory of the Father and the Son in chapter 4 and 5. The same thing you see at the time of Isaiah when he saw God lifted up on the throne. We need to have the curtains of heaven to be pushed back, pulled back, so that we can see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to pull back the curtains of heaven to see His glory. And I think this text can help us to do so, to see His greatness. And he will reveal us the identity of Jesus in this text. The climax of the text is the question of the high priest, Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus answers it. But the whole pericope will give us the identity of Jesus with four ironies. Four ironies. And what is an irony? Irony is to say something contrary to reality to make a point. 
A very silly example would be you see a very uh, skinny guy and you say, you are very fat. So you're seeing something, but you're saying the contrary to reality to make a point. And the authors of the New Testament, and even the all authors of the, of the Bible, they use ironies. One specific one that we will see here is dramatic irony, which is the results from the audience sharing with the author author's knowledge unavailable to one or more characters. So Mark here will let you and me know the readers more than the characters involved, except Jesus, could perceive. That's the dramatic irony in the text. The characters have no idea what's going on, but you and me, uh, the readers, can know. And you see the irony behind everything in the text. So we'll see the identity of Jesus with four ironies. The first one is that Jesus is the brave master. So who is Jesus? He is the brave master. Verses 53 and 54. It says this, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. For you to see this first irony that Jesus is the brave master, you have to know about a literary device that Mark uses all the time in his gospel that scholars would call sandwich or intercalation. He starts with a story and then he inserts another story and then he comes back to the same story that he had begun. That's a sandwich, you see? You see the same stories at the ends, the breads, and you see inside another story. And that's very important here. Because what you see here is beginning with Peter following Jesus at the courtyard, and he's warming himself with the guards while Jesus is in the building being judged. And then the text, our text, in verse 66, comes back to the story of Peter warming himself. He, He repeats that information. And then in verses 66 until verse 72, he says that Peter denies Jesus three times while Jesus is being judged by the Jewish council. And when you see that structure, when you see that reality, you see the irony behind the text that Jesus is the brave master. And you will see that both Jesus and Peter are on trial. Let's see some evidence of this truth, that both Peter and Jesus are on trial, and you have to read that way. Jesus was falsely accused in verse 56. Peter, on the other hand, is truthfully accused in verses 67, 69, and 70. Jesus is accused of blasphemy after telling them the truth in verse 64. And Peter curses while telling a lie in verse 71. You see the contrast there? Jesus reveals his identity in verses 61 and 62. While Peter conceals and hides his identity in verses 67 and 70 and 71. You see the contrast again when you read it as a sandwich. While Jesus is bravely answering the high priest, revealing his identity, Peter, on the other hand, is afraid of confessing who he is 
as Jesus' follower to a female servant of the high priest. A little girl, probably. Do you see the contrast there? The brave master is courageous enough to face the most powerful guy in Israel at that moment. But Peter is afraid of a little girl. You see the irony there? While Peter is sitting with the guards, in verse 54, it says there he was with the guards in the courtyard. The guards, probably the same ones, or the same type of guards, are heeding Jesus in verse 65. For foretelling, Jesus foretelling, that he will sit at the right hand of God. You see the irony there? Peter is sitting with the guards while Jesus is being hidden by the guards because he said that he will sit at the right hand of God. You see the beauty of the literature there? How Mark works there? It's beautiful. And then lastly, the lying Peter, the liar Peter, goes out free and without arm. Jesus who speaks the truth, is bound and tortured. And eventually Jesus goes to the cross. Do you see that in the text? It's an amazing literature. And what a great contrast. What an irony that you see here in this narrative. And as for you and for me to see the greatness of our Savior, and fear Him more. And here's the application. You and I should see ourselves as Peter in contrast to the brave Master, Jesus. In this irony, you should see the good news of the denial of Peter. Because this is a good news, isn't it? Because you and I, we are sinners just like Peter. You and I, with our sins, we deny our Savior. And here you see the good news of the denial of Peter and the greatness of our brave Master. Because there is grace for the chief of sinners like us. It's for you this morning again to remind yourself of this truth. That there is grace for the chief of sinners, deniers of Jesus. See the gospel there? The greatness of the brave master. But there's more in this application. Don't let your mind wander. By denying and being ashamed of Jesus... In this adulterous and sinful generation, as Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 38, Peter here, in this text, vividly illustrates Jesus' teaching of Mark 8, 35, which says that one who seeks to save his life will lose it. Peter is being an example of that truth in chapter 8. And now in chapter 14, you see... Peter not following Jesus' teaching. That says the one who seeks to save his life will lose it. And that's exactly what Peter is trying to do, to save his own life. And you see, if we follow the reason, it was supposed to Peter to lose his life. But ironically, is the beauty of the text. Ironically, in contrast... Jesus, in the trial, is the one who is willing to lose his life in order to gain life. You see again the contrast. Based on the teaching of discipleship of chapter 8 of Mark. Peter, who deserved to lose his life because he is trying so hard to save it, will, Peter will have it, Bought back 
by the one, the brave master, who will save his life, the life of Peter, precisely because Jesus is willing to lose it. What a truth. What a beautiful narrative. Isn't, isn't it amazing? I think it is. This contrast between Jesus and Peter in the Sandrian trial ironically explains how the brave master, Jesus, came to give his life as a ransom for his feeble, weak, fragile disciple, Peter. That's another, another fulfillment of Mark 10, 45. That's a lesson for all of us. Because of Jesus' bravery to not save his life, our lives were saved and our sins forgiven. That's your Jesus. This morning is for you to rejoice. Rejoice in your brave master. Go boldly to him like Peter did after the resurrection of Jesus. Remember that? In John chapter 21, here was a feeble, weak, fragile disciple. But after the resurrection, he rejoices in Jesus and goes after him. So rejoice, celebrate, enjoy this brave master Jesus. And now with this in mind, that he lost his life in order to save yours, then lose your life. Because of him. With that in mind, now have the purpose, the resolution, the desire, the passion to be faithful until the end. And to lose your life, to take up, the, take up your cross and follow him. But still in application, at the same time rejoice with trembling what? Rejoice with trembling? Yes. How can I rejoice with trembling? If I'm rejoicing, there's no fear involved. That's what we think many times. But that's not true when you see what's going on here in this text. If my sins are forgiven, why do I have to fear God? In the text, it's all about fear, isn't it? Peter is afraid of human beings, of men, of a little girl. While Jesus has the fear of God. That's why he can face any man or even darkness. But you fight the fear of men with the fear of God. And you rejoice trembling when you see your forgiveness in Christ. John Bunyan, in his book, one of his books, explains this so well. He says this, pay attention to this. For if God shall come to you indeed and visit you with the forgiveness of sins, that visit removeth the guilt. But, that's a very important but for you to not miss it. But, you see, you, your sins are forgiven, then you rejoice. But at the same time, says Bunyan, that knowledge that your sins were forgiven increaseth the sense of thy filth. And the sense of this, that God hath forgiven a filthy sinner, will make, will make thee both rejoice and tremble. And I think that's what you see in the text for you to fear more God than men when you see truly that you are a filthy sinner forgiven by this amazing brave master that lost his life to save yours. That way you can rejoice with trembling. You see that truth? The grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ will give you both fear of the Lord and joy. That's what you see in Psalm 2. To rejoice 
with fear. And that's, I think, what you have here. Because Peter, just like Jesus, in Acts chapter 3 and 4, when he receives the forgiveness of sins because he cries. You see, we, we read in the text. After he denied three times, he remembered what Jesus said to him, and he cries, and it was not tears of crocodile. It was true repentance. True repentance. And then in Acts chapter 3 and 4, he is brave, just like his master, to face the same guys that you see here in the trial of Mark 14. And they say, those guys, Peter and John, are like Jesus. But that's after the experience, the greatness of the brave master who gives grace to repented, filthy sinners. Do you see yourself there? Are you able to do the same? Irony and glory. The unveiling of the brave master so that you can see the greatness of Jesus' grace in order for you to fear God with joy. Secondly, you see the true temple in verses 55 to 59. In verse 58, the witnesses accuse falsely Jesus. What is one of their accusations? Mark gives us one among many. And the one that Mark gives is this, that Christ would destroy the temple made by human hands and in three days would rebuild another not made with human hands. That's one of the accusations that is revealed to us here. But look, look, we'll see that Jesus is the true temple with this irony. Although the accusation was false because they, not, they, the accusers, did not fully understand what they were saying and were accusing with evil motives. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. He never said that in John 2. But besides that, they had evil motives. That witnesses, nevertheless, ironically came to pass. You see? Because with the death of Christ... That witnesses was fulfilled. Actually, that same accusation you see in Mark 15, verses 23 and 39. And even though the accusation was false in the death of Christ, the accusation turned out to be true. What an irony. Again, in the text. In his death, Christ destroys a necessity of, of a physical temple. And in his resurrection, Jesus builds a temple not made by human hands. What is it? Himself. His resurrection. His new body. His glorified body. In his ascension, Jesus enters in the temple not made by human hands. What, what is it? Heaven. As you learn in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 24. And with his entire work, life, death, resurrection, ascension, Jesus builds another temple not made by human hands. What is it? The church, you and me. Colossians 2, Ephesians 2. Do you see? You see the irony there? The false accusation turned out to be true in order to reveal who the true temple is. Jesus Christ and His body. And this is the second irony in the text. In the destruction of His temple, Jesus builds another temple. With the sacrifice of His temple, Christ builds another temple. Resurrection and the church. Resurrection and the church. Now, what does this have to do with us? Everything. This is the hope for death, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 15, John 11, 
The destruction of your body or your temple is an evidence for the construction of another temple for the Christians. Because of Jesus' work, when you die, you will be in His arms. That's the hope of this irony. That's the teaching of this truth that Jesus is the true temple. What a hope! But more than that, you will have a new body, a resurrection. Now it's been a bit more than two years that we experienced the pandemic. Right? And when we were going through, I was meditating upon the fact that how much I am afraid of death. Have you thought about that? And it made me, made me think also that sometimes we have the tendency, we are prone to follow death, to be followers of death. Do not have death as your shepherd, as we learn in Psalm 49, verse 14. But that's what we have many times in our hearts, you know, without even thinking about it. Right, kids? Let me go further with this. Jesus, the true temple, makes you remember the resurrection. Here's one of the things that you have to apply and remember. That your life, children, that your life, young men, that my life cannot, cannot be summed up, summarized, summed up here in this life. But that's how we live. That's what we believe daily. That eternal life is here in this world. That's our reality. That's what we think without even thinking about it. Let me press this truth deeper with you. I think we will we still believe in the serpent's lie of Genesis 3. What serpent's lie? What the serpent said to Eve. Surely you shall never die. Isn't that what the serpent said? We still believe in that truth, you know? We still believe inside our hearts. We know about death. We know we'll, we'll die, we'll die. But be honest with you. That's not true in your daily basis. We still believe in the serpent's lie, lie that we shall never die. Now listen to me now. Because this truth that Jesus is the true temple. The irony that the, the wrong accusation, the lie of the accusers turned out to be true. You see the same thing with the serpent's lie. Because ironically, the true temple makes the serpent's lie to be true in the gospel. The truth that Jesus is the true temple, that he is life after death, that he is the resurrection, makes us believe that even, if, even when we die, we will live forever with him. Can you see it? Can you have heavens pulled back? To see the greatness of your temple, the true temple, Jesus Christ. That the lie of the serpent turned out to be true only in the gospel of Jesus. Because of our true temple, Jesus, we shall never die. Our world is not here. He will give us new life, new body, new world with Him forever. Beloved Christian, what else can I say? Let me put some flesh in the bones of this application for you. Talking about a lady, an old lady now, called Johnny Erickson Data. Probably many of you already know her. She had an accident when she was, I don't know, 17 years old, 18 years old, very young. 
she jumped into a lake and hit her head and broke her neck and paralyzed from the neck down since 1967. Since then, she's been paralyzed from the neck down. And then she talks, she tells a story in one of her books that she was in a meeting, a prayer meeting. And the leader asked everyone to kneel down. And she started to cry. Not because she could not kneel down, but because of this. Listen to this. And apply to your life about the truth of the resurrection and the true temple. Listen. I suddenly realize that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, heaven, the first thing I will be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful and glorified knees before Jesus. And then I'm going to get on my feet and dance. And then she says this. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives for someone with a spinal cord injury like me? Can you imagine the hope that this gives a manic depressive? No religion, no other philosophy offers us new bodies, not just new minds and hearts. And only in the gospel of Jesus can people hurting like me have such a hope to live. The disease of the century behind us in our century is called depression. How? How can we not apply such a truth of the resurrection that we have because of the true temple, Jesus Christ. Jesus is unique. Nothing like the gospel. Christianity is unparalleled, Christians. There's no truth like Johnny said here, like that. It's only in the gospel. Can you believe it? Can you trust it? And if we go to Revelation, can you see all the promises that we have there and hold tight in our heart with all, with all our strength and might and believe it? That says that we, that we will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. That we will receive the crown of life. That we will eat the hidden man and receive the white, white stone with our new name written on it. That we will have the power over the nation. That we will be clothed with the white garments. And Christ will confess our name before the Father and the angels. That Jesus will write upon us the name of God, His new name, in the name of the city of God. That Jesus will grant us to sit with Him in His throne as He sat down with the Father in His throne. And we will reign with Him forever. This resurrection life has already begun when you believed in the gospel. And the best of all, we will be with him, our true temple forever. What a gospel, beloved. What a truth. He is the brave master. He is the true temple. What else is he in the text? Third, that he is the royal priestly judge. He is the royal priestly judge. Now, I'm going to give you the irony right away. Ironically, the judge of the universe in this passage is judged by depraved human judges. You see the irony again? All this time, Jesus has been silent concerning all the accusations and false witnesses. But when the high priest asks him if he is the Son of God, Christ responds. And his confession is this, that Jesus could have responded to the high priest in, with so many titles and names and works that he has. But he chose specific texts of the Old Testament Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. That he's coming with the clouds of heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, showing that he is the king and the high priest, and that he possesses all the authority, the ultimate authority in this universe, and that he puts his enemy under his feet. Whoa. 
That's magnificent. The one who has all power is under human power in order to save. Let me repeat this, the irony. The one who has all power is under human power in order to save you. The judge of the universe is judged is the third irony. What a truth. Let me just now apply this truth for you. I want you to see, I hope you have picked up the rhythm of the text. That a life of sanctification, a life of holiness, a life that obeys the law of God flows out from the knowledge of the greatness of Jesus. Let me repeat this. A life of holiness, a life of consecration to your God flows out of your knowledge, of true knowledge and trust of the one who is great, Jesus Christ. Believing in him, he is the gospel. And through that grace enables you and put motivation and passion and desire and longing to obey your God. You see how antinomianism and legalism are destroyed when you see the greatness of Jesus. Let me give you some applications for this. When you see that the judge of the universe is judged for you, what is the implication of this? Let me give you one. This should end all gossips and all you talk about any person. When you truly believe that your judge, because of your sins, was judged for you, that, that should end all gossip. Because the presupposition, the assumption of all gossip and slander is that you are better than the other person. That you are greater than the other person. That you are holier than the other person. That you are not like that person. That's why you talk about that person to the other one, to another one. But when you believe that the judge of the universe was judged for you, you don't slander anyone. You don't gossip about anyone. Because you're just like them. You go after them to seek repentance out of them. Because the judge of the universe was judged for you. But there's another implication. This truth that the judge was judged should produce love for those that disagree with you theologically. Isn't it? The only perfect theologian was Jesus. And he was judged. The judge, the theologian judge was judged for you. How in the world can you feel superior when you know that you and I, at some point, yes, we have error in our theology. Yes, there's self-righteousness through doctrine, you know. And we must kill it as well in knowing that this is just through, just through grace that we receive good theology. Third, uh, third implication. These should also make you forgive people that wronged you. Deeply, deeply wronged you. Is there anyone here that there's hurt because someone in your family hurt you? Wronged you? Sinned against you? Deeply? And you are struggling? Let me remind you that the judge, that you wronged him, that you sinned against him, that you with your sins put him in this trial and put him to death on that cross, died for you. How in the world can you not forgive those who wronged you and ask you for forgiveness? How? But there's more. This truth also should be in your mind. So that, make, that should make you cast all your burdens, 
all your guilty, your guilt, all your guilt upon the Lord. Do you still carry the guilty? The guilt, I mean, that you don't forgive yourself? You know what I mean. The Bible doesn't talk to you for, to forgive yourself, but you have, you are beating up yourself, beating up yourself. When you know that the judge of the universe was judged for you, are you God? If you know that is, this is true and he died for you, how come you do not relax? How come you do not rest? How come you do not rely on that one that purposefully, willingly died for you to forgive your sins? Are you God? Or somebody else is your God, that's why you don't forgive yourself? No, it's time for you to see the judge of the universe being judged for you so that you can now see heaven open with your sins forgiven. You see, who is Jesus? He is the brave master for feeble disciples. He is the true temple, the true resurrection for his body, the church. He is the judge who is judged, the royal priestly judged, judged who is judged for you. And fourth and lastly, he is the ultimate prophet. He is the supreme prophet. I think this is one of the most amazing verses of the Bible. Just one verse. Verse 65. Go there, I'm going to read it and pay attention because I think here is the the most amazing irony of all. And some began, 65, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. You see what's going on here? They are mocking Jesus. They are making fun of Jesus. They say, prophesy, come on. You just, you just prophesied that you will build another temple. Isn't that the accusation? That's a prophecy that you made. And you just prophesied here to the high priest that you will come on the clouds of heaven. And will sit at the right hand of God the Father. You just prophesied. You are not a true prophet. You are just a fake prophet. They hit Jesus in the face. They hit him. They spit on him and say, tell me who hit you. Tell me who spit on you. Come on. Can you not tell us in a second when you're blindfolded? You are just a fake prophet. You are not a prophet at all. You cannot even predict what happened one second ago. And I think this is the most amazing irony of all. You see the irony there? See? Here again, you see the beauty of the literature. The sandwich begins with Peter, and then he inserts the camera was in the courtyard outside, and the camera goes inside of the building where Jesus be, is being tried, and then it goes outside again where Peter denies Jesus three times. Don't forget that. And here's the most interesting irony of all the other ironies in this narrative. Because this irony is the fulfillment of all the other ironies. At the moment that they are mocking him and telling him he is no prophet, now pay attention to this, this is beautiful. I think this is, this is stunning. This is the dramatic irony. At the moment that they are mocking Jesus, at the same moment that they are hating Jesus, this prophesy making fun of him, their fragility, their weakness, and the denial of Peter are then fulfilling Christ's earlier prediction in Mark 14, verses 27 to 31. At the same moment that they are mocking Jesus. Do you see it there? The destruction of the temple and its rebuilding are now starting to take place as Jesus predicted his death and resurrection in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. You see that again. At the moment that they are 
mocking Jesus. And that entire trial was the result of Jesus' prophecy in Mark 10, in Mark 8, in Mark 9, and of His prophecy of the Old Testament. And even in chapter 10, He prophesied that those guys would spit on Him. And when they are spitting on Jesus, mocking Jesus is a fulfillment of that prediction in chapter 10, that they would spit on Him. Whoa! Glorious, extraordinary Savior. There is no one like Him. He is simply amazing. Don't you agree with me? He is incomparable. When human beings think they are mocking at Jesus, it is Jesus that is laughing at their mocking and letting us know, the readers, that He is mocking at them without saying a word. Without saying even a letter. <laughs> Mark at the same. I want you to see the beauty of the literature. There's no literature in the world like this. Go ahead. I challenge you. If you find such a literature that not only works with literary device of irony such as this, but you know behind it, it's all history. It's not fiction. It's not like Harry Potter. It's not like any other literature that you can think of as C.S. Lewis, that's fiction with Narnia. No, it's history. Use it in such a way that you can see the beauty, the ingenuity, the art. It's for you to see how he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's the only explanation. It is just stunning. Because at this moment, Mark is reminding us Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. When read together, one can perceive that the mockers of Psalm 1 will be mocked by God in Psalm 2. And Mark is telling us this because when the high priest says, Are you the Son of God? He's making reference to Psalm 2. And Jesus, without saying a word, is mocking the mocker, saying, Yes, I am the Son of God. God of Psalm 2, because the mockers have been mocked without me saying even a letter. But my readers, my followers, will know in the 21st century, in the URC Trinity Church, they will know, they will see how great I am, how amazing I am, and how I am the fulfillment of Psalm 1 and 2 in this narrative. While Jesus' antagonists are mocking Jesus, Mark is ironically mocking at their mocking against the ultimate prophet by letting you know more than evil character of this story could. The one who was considered a false prophet turned out to be the supreme, true prophet of all. Now, children, if you understand what just, I just said, how can, you, how can you not believe it right now? That the Jesus that your parents believe. That the Jesus that they worship every Sunday that you come over here for you to give your life to Him. Because there's no one like Him. Actually, let me end. Because I think the cross is powerfully the most ironic prophecy in all history. Isn't it? Yes, it is. The cross is powerfully the most ironic prophecy in all history. Yes. Because with defeat on the cross, we have the victory of the Lamb. Because in His humiliation, the damned cross... Is it a right there that we see his exaltation putting every enemy under his feet? It is when he received the wrath of God that we receive his love. It is when it was everything dark in the middle of the day at noon. Everything was darkness said where we see light. It is with His perdition that we see salvation. In His service that we have the kingdom. 
in his death that we have life, in his condemnation that we have forgiveness, in his wounds we are healed, in his horror of that cross. It's that where, that's where we have peace with God. In his ugliness that we see beauty. It is hell when he called and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me that the curtain was torn in two so that we can have heaven. It is in his enmity that we have friendship, in his weakness that we see power, in his poverty that we see riches, in his failure we see success, in the betrayal of his disciples we see Jesus' faithfulness, in his loss we see gain, and with the shame of the, of the cross is that we see his glory shining the most. If this Christ, this unveiling of this Christ cannot destroy your lukewarmness, your indifference to this Jesus, nothing else will. Nothing else. Irony and glory. The unveiling of Christ's identity for all of us through this text and Jesus is the gospel, our brave master, our true temple, our royal priesthood judge who is judged for us, our supreme prophet. He is the gospel, beloved. And I call you, I exhort you, I plead with you, renew your faith and trust and hope to this one who is incomparable matchless, great Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I can scream, I can jump, I can do anything here, but without your Holy Spirit, nothing will happen. Nothing. Nothing will happen with me. Nothing will happen with your church. Please, with your Holy Spirit, bring, bring the glory of Jesus right at our eyes, right before us, so that we may love Him more, we may cherish Him more, we may worship Him more. Do this by your Holy Spirit. In His name we pray. Amen.